So just to start out, to, to get us into the mood, I think, for the paper, I want to refer to some events in the United States in 2006, to go back that far. And uh, I think this is uh, a good way to introduce the topic, if, if I could do it this way. A 2006 statement of principles by 55 Catholic Democrats, members of the Democrat Party in the US House of Representatives, rekindled the debate in the country over the responsibilities of Catholic politicians to support legislation compatible with church teaching. The signatories of the letter, which was issued on February 28, 2006, stated that, and I quote, we seek the church's guidance and assistance, but believe also in the primacy of conscience. In recognizing the church's role in providing moral leadership, we acknowledge and accept the tension that comes with being in disagreement with the church in some areas, end of quote. This statement of principles signed by a majority of Catholic Democrats in the House clearly opens another round in an ongoing debate involving Catholic bishops and lay holders of public office over the manner in which Catholic politicians in the administration of their public duties are to be held accountable to the moral teachings of the Pope and the bishops. At the center of the decision to issue this statement of principles stands the abortion controversy as the signatories openly acknowledged. The statement should therefore be read against the backdrop of the 2004 United States presidential campaign in which several American bishops publicly stated their intention to deny Senator John Kerry, who was a Catholic, the sacrament of communion should he attend mass in their dioceses. In May 2004, two thirds of the Catholic Democrats in the House of Representatives wrote to the then Archbishop of Washington, Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, protesting this action on the part of some bishops. The US bishops are known to have discussed formally the question which, if any, which if any sanctions could be invoked against Catholic legislators who repeatedly vote in a manner inconsistent with the position of the bishops on the abortion issue. I find this statement on the part of 55 Catholic Democrats in the US House worthy of attention because of the concise manner in which the principles articulated by the legislators frame three significant theological tensions in the wider debate. The first tension pits the responsibility felt by these legislators to be true to their Catholic faith against the responsibility that they feel in their words, quote, to foster an America with a rich diversity of faiths, end quote. The second tension pits the abortion issue against other social issues, which these legislators believe hold a strong claim on their attention. The signatories to this statement maintain, for example, that they are working at, quote, reducing the rising rates of poverty, increasing access to education for all, pressing for increased access to health care, and taking seriously the decision to go to war, end of quote. Finally, the Democrat Catholic legislators insist that, quote, the church is the people of God, called to be a moral force in the broadest sense. We believe the church as a community is called to be in the vanguard of creating a more just America and world. And as such, we have a claim on the church's bearing as it does on ours, end of quote. 
Hence, the third tension revealed in this statement situates the responsibility of bishops to provide moral guidance to the faithful alongside the responsibility of lay Catholic legislators to influence the direction of Catholic social policy in the country. Each of these three tensions leads back to the central question posed by the signatories of this statement of principles, namely whether and in which cases Catholic legislators can rightly appeal to the principle of primacy of conscience in dissenting from the bishop's moral guidance on some issues involving public policy. Now that's one issue that I want to raise at the beginning of the talk. The second one is more of a panorama of what I see or what I, yes, have seen uh, going on, going on throughout the Western world in, in brief. The last 40 years since the conclusion of the Second Vatican Council represent a period of major reshaping of the power of the Catholic Church in the political life of historically Catholic countries and regions of the world, among them Italy, Austria, Ireland, Quebec, and Spain, to name a few. In Italy during this period, the prominence of the major Catholic political party, the Democrazia Cristiana, diminished greatly in respect to other political parties and movements not allied with the church hierarchy. Whereas in regions such as Quebec and Ireland, Catholic bishops no longer enjoy the cozy relationship to individual politicians that they did in the 1960s and 70s. However, the last 40 years have also witnessed in these nations a more public assertiveness in the political sphere on the part of national Episcopal conferences. Bishops acting individually and collectively have spoken out vociferously on various moral issues, in often in opposition to the positions taken on these issues by Catholic politicians, for example, in the areas of bioethics and lately immigration. The same can be said of bishops in Western nations in which Catholics are in the minority, such as the United Kingdom and the United States. In taking up these moral arguments in public, bishops have reminded Catholic politicians of their duty to support church teaching on many issues, such as on abortion. And at times they have threatened Catholic politicians with condemnations, and even in particular in the United States, with ecclesial sanctions, including a ban from receiving the sacrament of Holy Communion, unless they support the Catholic position on abortion. I want to focus in this paper on this relationship between bishops and Catholic politicians. Specifically, I want to focus on the question how bishops ought to approach Catholic politicians over the application of Catholic ethical principles to social and political questions. Here, I bear in mind the teaching office of bishops, the magisterium, in which bishops publicly state Catholic moral teachings, as well as the responsibilities of bishops to sanctify and to govern, under which authority they admonish and even sanction Catholic politicians who, in the exercise of their public duties, reject or refuse to apply the church's weightier moral teachings, as in the cases of abortion and euthanasia. I raise this question because it is not universally accepted as self-evident that bishops act properly when they seek to coerce Catholic politicians through the threat of ecclesial sanctions. How much pressure should bishops use in order to persuade Catholic politicians to govern civil society according to the church's moral teachings on social questions. I will not attempt to answer this question, 
but instead to offer a perspective on it from the experience of St. Augustine. In this paper, I will argue that Augustine gives us, and this is important, the first ever theory of Christian political conscience formation. In saying this, I am suggesting that Augustine was the first authority to propose a way for Catholic politicians to think through the ethical problems associated with their official duties in a manner consistent with their faith. This is not to say that Augustine was the first to address public officials about political ethics. Writers before him had urged Christians in public life to adopt particular ethical positions or to take action on specific issues with moral implications. Ambrose of Milan, for example, comes quickly to mind. However, Augustine is the first to offer a coherent theoretical explanation about how Christian officials should approach ethical decision-making. All right, that's the introduction. Now I'm going to depart from my text and just talk to you. So basically my, my thesis concerns four letters exchanged between Augustine and um, the Vicar of Africa in 414, 415, who was called Macedonius. Now here's what happened. Augustine wrote to Macedonius, this, this particular letter we don't possess. Augustine wrote to Macedonius and asked him for clemency in a particular case where a man had been condemned to death or was to be condemned to death. We don't know the man's name. We don't know the offense, the capital offense, which he was accused of committing or convicted of committing. We don't know much at all about the case. But we know that Augustine wrote this letter to Macedonius. Now, he knew Macedonius. Macedonius was, you might say, a spiritual son of Augustine. He addressed, his, he addressed Augustine as his spiritual father. Macedonius was a learned man, a learned man in the liberal arts, and not bad with theology either, I must say, from my reading of his letters. So he, he, he wrote to Augustine and he said, look, he said, uh, um, why is it that you bishops are constantly harping about clemency for men and women convicted of capital crimes? Don't you believe in capital punishment as a deterrent? What do you want us to do? Just allow these people to go free and commit other capital crimes? Uh, don't, you, don't, you, don't you get it that, uh, that by, by enforcing capital punishment, we're actually we're actually lowering the crime rate, so to speak, within, within the colonies. So I don't understand what this purpose of yours is in interfering with us. It's outside of the role of religion. Well, Augustine wrote back, oh, and he said, and by the way, could you send me the first three books of your City of God, which I understand you've written, and I'd be very interested to read them. So Augustine writes back and he says, okay, I, I send you with this letter, I send you the first three books of the City of God. Um, but I want to address your concerns directly. Now he says, yes, you're right. Capital punishment has its, 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 its rationale, ratio. It's reasonable. It has its causes. And it has its effects. It does, as you say, provide a deterrent to crime. Augustine was indicated in, say, in saying this, that he recognized that there was a certain appeal to capital punishment. 
but he went on. Augustine cited Romans 13, 1 through 8, a text which I'm going to read to you as part of his, as part of his concession to Macedonius of the ruler's right to impose capital punishment. Romans 13, 3 to 5 reads in Augustine, well, our English translation of Augustine's Latin text. Quote, rulers do not inspire fear in those who do good, but in those who do evil. Do you want not to fear the authorities? Do good and you will have praise from them. For the minister of God is there for your good. If you do evil, then fear him, for he does not wield a sword pointlessly. He is a minister of God and avenger of his anger on the evildoer. Therefore, you must be subject to this necessity, not only because of their anger, but because of your conscience, end of quote. Augustine, I think, knew that Macedonius was aware of this text. Paul's letters were well known toward the end of the 4th century and the beginning of the 5th century. Macedonius, as I said, was a Catholic Christian and fairly well-read himself. Macedonius does not raise this text with Augustine, but the tenor of his letter indicates that, well, he knows that there's a certain divine authority behind what he does, and that's why he questions why it is that bishops are somehow protesting the death penalty, or if not protesting it directly, at least asking for what seemed to Macedonius an unreasonable number of clemencies. So in line with Paul's view, as he understands it, Augustine assures Macedonius that the severity shown by the imperial vic vicar in, in applying the death penalty is beneficial for society and promotes peace. Society, Augustine reasons, requires for its security that people fear punishment. Augustine thus insists that the intercession of bishops in favor of clemency is only meant to mitigate and not abrogate the severity of secular judges in regard to the punishments they mete out, including the death penalty. Okay, so do we have Augustine as a proponent or a supporter of the death penalty? Because we have this particular text in which he comes out strongly in favor of the death penalty, and the answer would have to be no. If this were the only scriptural text that Augustine cited, if this were the only scriptural argument that he made in letter 153, then we would have to assume that, yes, Augustine is a supporter of the death penalty. But it's not the only scriptural text, and it's not the only logic or rationale that Augustine brings to bear on the question. And here's where it gets even more interesting. Augustine intertexts Romans 13, 1 through 8, with John 8, 3 to 11, the pericope of the woman caught in adultery. And by intertexting, I mean that he reinterprets Romans in the light of John. You'll recall the uh, case of the woman caught in adultery. The scribes and Pharisees drag a woman before Jesus who was caught in the act of adultery itself. And they ask him, you know, they say to him, the law requires that she be put to death. What say you? And Jesus says, let the one without sin cast the first stone. 
and the scribes and Pharisees, Augustine says, one by one, beginning with the eldest, depart and leave the woman alone with Jesus. And Jesus says to her, has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, sir. And then he replies, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So now what do we do? And Augustine basically poses this question to Macedonius. Where does this leave us? Augustine's conclusion from this and from other, other basic texts of his in which he treats this, this uh, pericope indicates that he thinks that the reason, well, the lesson here, the lesson here is that only a just judge has a right to condemn anyone to death. That is only a perfectly just judge. Christ, Christ could have condemned her to death justly. He didn't, but he could have because he was perfectly just. The implication is that no other magistrate will be perfectly just and therefore should not condemn anyone to death. But that's not Augustine's final position either. What he does not do, and this is interesting to me, what he does not do in letter 153, the letter in which he brings together the Romans text and the John text, what he does not do is to tell Macedonius what he should do in this case. He's asked him for a clemency, acknowledging that, um, that Macedonius has a right and even a rationale to put a convicted uh, individual to death, but he doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't prescribe the use of the death penalty or pros proscribe it in general. In general, he's, he's leaving the question open. He's leaving it up to Macedonius to take the two texts and reason between them. Augustine reminds Macedonius, and this is a bit cheeky on his part, that he, Macedonius, is not just that only God is just, that he is a holy and upright man, yes. Augustine has high regard for Macedonius as a Christian and as an individual, a spiritual individual. So he has high regard for him, but he reminds him, you know, you're not perfect. You're not totally just. So there, it would seem that Augustine is tilting towards, well, an abrogation of the death penalty, since no magistrate can be just enough to be able to condemn someone to death. But he doesn't, he doesn't take that position at all. He simply lays out these two texts and their interpretation for Macedonius. Then we get Macedonius's reply, letter 154. And Macedonius thanks Augustine for the three books of the, the, the city of God and comments on them at you know, in a couple of lines, he says, he says, I was, uh, I was just astonished by the wisdom of them. The, uh, the history of, 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 of philosophy behind them. The, uh, the great insight into, into Roman religion. Um, so he praises, he praises the three books of the city of God. And then he announces to Augustine, oh, by the way, I've granted the clemency that you, requ you requested. And then some other small talk, and that's it. It's a brief letter, just to informing Augustine, I thank you for the books of the city of God. I've read them. I find them 
truly remarkable. Um, they, 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 yeah, he says, they interested me right from the beginning and captured, captured my full attention. And then he says, yeah, I've, I've, by the way, I've granted the clemency that you requested. Augustine writes back letter 155, and this is the key text. This is the key letter. And it's on this letter that I'll spend some time with you. First of all, Augustine praises Macedonius. Of course, he would. He praises him for his, um, his decision, the clemency he grants. He says, you are a man. And this, this is a compliment that I've never heard Augustine actually say to anyone. Though you wear the belt of a judge, you are close to the city of God. That's a truly remarkable statement. Though you wear the, the belt of a judge, which and that belt symbolizes the power of life and death, which the vicar for Africa had at, at, in, his, in, his, in, his, in, his, in his hand, the power over life and death. Though you wear the belt of a judge, you are close to the city of God. That, that's tantamount to saying you're saintly. If you're close to the city of God, if you're close to living in the heavenly homeland, then already here on earth, already you imbibe the qualities of a saint, is what Augustine was saying. And Augustine thought it was just as important that, uh, that, that Macedonius could penetrate the... Um, the significance of the first three books of the city of God from a philosophical point of view, that that attested as much to his wisdom, his sapientia, as his granting of the clemency did. So it was a double, double reason, if you will, for praising Macedonius. Then Augustine moves on, and this is the part which I really want to concentrate on. And this is the, 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 the place in which Augustine um, articulates what I, what I call this theory of political conscience formation. This isn't just, con this isn't general conscience formation, it's specifically political conscience formation. Now there are four cardinal virtues or four political virtues as they were called. Let me see if I can remember them. Temperance, justice, justice, temperance, um, Prudence, prudence, justice, temperance, and the fourth one, I can't remember. See, I should have, I should have gone over this text more. Well, anyway, there are four. These were well known from Plato through Cicero to Augustine. They were well known in the ancient world. These are secular political virtues that any statesman, and they were men back then, so I'll, I'll say statesman, that any statesman would 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 know and would would uh, would emulate, want to emulate. If he were a good statesman, if he were morally upright, he would really want to practice these virtues, as they had been articulated, especially by Cicero, it, throughout Cicero's works. So we're talking about the Western Empire, basically. So each of, these, each of these virtues had a secular definition. Justice, for example, justice was giving to each his or her due, giving to each one his or her due. That's the secular meaning of justice. And Augustine doesn't dispute that. And Augustine would understand justice in the same way. He would accept that secular definition of justice. 
as he would accept the secular definitions of temperance and uh, prudence. But Augustine, and here's here's the the philosophical twist, and this is this is why I'm glad I'm not reading this text to you, but rather explaining it, because this is where it gets very, very complicated. Augustine pairs these four political virtues with the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. What he wants to say is that our faith, hope, and charity, if they're Christian faith, Christian hope, and Christian charity, will modify the way that we understand the secular virtues. Prudence, justice, fortitude, echo. Fortitude and uh, uh, prudence, justice, fortitude, and now I can't remember. Temperance. So faith, hope, and charity. So how does this happen? It happens through a, a, a profound meditation. This is a spiritual exercise that Augustine invites Macedonius to undertake, a spiritual exercise in which he meditates on these each of these virtues as they are in the secular form, but as they would be practiced in the heavenly city, in the city of God. So how, how do we practice justice in the city of God? Since it's, it means giving to each his or her Jew. Well, in the city of God, we give to God God's Jew. So in the city of God, we're not concerned with giving to one another his or her Jew. We're concerned with giving to God God's Jew. And he goes through a similar kind of meditation on the other three political virtues and concludes that each one of them, each one of them arrives at love of God as the aim of that virtue, as that virtue is practiced in heaven. So the virtues, the secular virtues, are transformed by faith, hope, and charity into heavenly versions of the same earthly virtues, heavenly versions of the same earthly virtues. But there, each one of them is collapsible into, he says, beatitude or wisdom or even piety. So he has different names for how these four virtues will converge into the love of God in the heavenly city. Now, how, how do the theological virtues effect this transformation? Faith tells us what we must believe and urges us to believe it. So principally, God, the Holy, the Holy Trinity, sorry, the Holy Trinity, the incarnation of Christ, everlasting life. These are doctrines which faith calls us to profess, to confess. Hope, and hope is the essential virtue of the three in this sense. Hope transforms the way we think about reality, Augustine says. Hope sets my aim for blessedness in the other life. It removes it from a focus on this world, on this worldly happiness or blessedness, and transforms it into a hope, a, 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 an, a, an aspiration, if you will, for a blessedness which comes in the, in the life to come. 
So death provides us with an horizon that hope transcends. So believing these doctrines, having our, our, bless, our hope for blessedness transformed into, into a, 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 an otherworldly hope for blessedness, we then are able to love God and love our neighbor as ourself. So love of God becomes the aim of all the secular virtues. And these virtues are, are thus transformed into the love of God. Now there's one final transformation that this meditation takes the, takes Macedonia, is supposed to take Macedonia through. So that first transformation is from the secular virtues in themselves to the, the, the virtues, these same virtues as they would be practiced in heaven, in the heavenly city. Then Augustine asks Macedonius to, to once again look at those same virtues now transformed, but to look at them again in the worldly secular context. So each of the, each of the four virtues becomes a way of defending ourselves from anything which would detract us from the love of God, the love of God in this life. So, for example, temperance fights any temptation to deter ourselves from the love of God. Prudence is loving God above all things. Justice is giving to God God's due, which is love. So all these virtues focus on the love of God as that love can be lived in this world now. So we return again to this world from the heavenly world in which we were imagining those virtues being transformed by faith, hope, and charity. Now we, now we look at those virtues thus transformed. We look at how, how can we practice these political virtues now transformed by faith, hope, and charity. How can we practice these political virtues in this world? This is the ethical transformation that Augustine believes all Catholic politicians should undergo. And it has a radical kind of uh, consequence. And that radical co consequence is that all governing, all governing is aimed at guiding people into the love of God. All governing is aimed at guiding people into the love of God, into true blessedness, in other words. So we ask ourselves, well, okay, that sounds nice, but practically, what does that mean? Practically, what does the statesman seek to do? Augustine is short on, on programs, on social programs, on political programs. He doesn't really answer that question directly in, in well, in very clear terms, he doesn't answer the question directly. Augustine's political thought is not programmatic. He doesn't provide a, he doesn't lay out a program of, of social and political action that he believes that uh, Christian politicians ought to undertake. Instead, he, he hints at ways, and they're, they're, they're hints, but in some cases they're strong hints. He hints at ways in which the, um, the public official might be able to govern in a way consistent with the transformation of political virtues through faith, hope, and charity. 
I've already given the example of capital punishment. Augustine is laying out this program of transformation of political virtues in letter 155 because he's continuing the conversation of his earlier letter 153 about capital punishment. This is precisely the process which he thinks that Macedonius should undertake in every case where he has to make a judgment about, about capital punishment. What does the love of God demand of me in this decision? What does the love of God demand of me? How, how can I govern in such a way as to promote the love of God in the people I govern? And how will this particular decision play into that task or that function that I have of leading, of guiding the people of, the people of this, this territory whichever territory it is, into, into a greater love of God. And it may be that in a particular case that will involve punishment. And it may be that in a particular case that will involve capital punishment. But Augustine doesn't say that. He leaves that open. He leaves that up to Macedonius to decide. There's another letter in which Augustine uses this same theory of transformation of political virtues through faith, hope, and charity. There's another letter, letter 138. In this particular letter, Augustine talks about war. And he says that it may be the case that in order to witness to Christian charity, we have to cede territory to our enemy. We have to actually cede territory to our enemy. It may be that to do otherwise would be to create far too much violence, far too much killing. So in other words, it's better, he says, to give up territory and thus to give an example of benevolence to our enemy. The same example of benevolence can be given to an enemy when we win a war, when we conquer an enemy. Instead of eviscerating the enemy, as would be the case with the Pax Romana, we can practice Christian charity toward our vanquished foe. And in that sense, Augustine believes we can build up, and he actually says this, we can build a, a more just society in that conquered nation than we could had we, had we used the full force of vengeance. So generals, military leaders, military officials, Marcellinus was a military official. The, the, the addressee of letter 138 was a military official. Can by their, their meditation on these virtues, they can effect a more just outcome in a battle than they might otherwise if they were only concerned with practicing political virtues in their secular form without their transformation by faith, hope, and charity. All right, that's, that's, that's the theory. As I said, I think Augustine is the first, I, I'm sure he's the first Christian writer to actually present a theory. Why do I call it a theory? In part because, and this I won't, I won't go into in this talk, <clears throat> Augustine is aware of a similar dynamic in pagan authors, in Neoplatonic authors, such as, well, Porphyry, 
whereby the same political virtues are modified by faith, hope, love, eros. So this same triad is found in, 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 in pagan political philosophy. It's also found in Macrobius and Marinus who follow Augustine. So it's, it's part of a kind of a, a pagan, neoplatonic, philosophical, political um, theory on the transformation of virtues, on the transformation of political virtues that was known to Augustine at the time. His Christian adaptation of this pagan philosophical dynamic, thus, thus I, I say, I would say, constitutes Augustine as a theorist of political conscience for Christians. Now, there's another point I want to make about Augustine's um, approach to the, uh, the Christian statesman. Different scholars of Augustine take different views of, um, well, of his political thought. Some argue for a minimalist interpretation, that Augustine really was hands-off when it comes to uh, giving advice to Christian political officials, that he really didn't have anything to contribute, that he didn't really believe that Christianity could make a difference in the political sphere. And so he didn't offer any political advice or counsel. Obviously, I don't take that position, though I agree with the minimalists that Augustine didn't expect, he didn't anticipate that this would lead to some kind of Christian commonwealth. He didn't believe that many politicians, public officials would follow his advice, would adapt this kind of meditation on, on secular virtues and would actually undergo that kind of transformation themselves. He believed that Macedonius would and could, but Macedonius was special. The same for Marcellinus. These were special individuals. Nevertheless, Augustine wrote these, this theory, he wrote this theory in letters to public officials, which he knew would be copied and spread. He knew that these letters would not remain private documents. So he may have had some hope that other public officials besides Macedonius and Marcellinus would take up the, uh, the challenge that he was giving them about being able on their own without specific advice from bishops to make political public policy decisions that reflected Christian values. Another school of thought, I call it the secularist thought, the secularist approach, holds that Augustine really just yielded the political ground to, to, to pagans, that he really wasn't interested at all in, in bishops having any say whatsoever in public policy. So they, they bifurcate the role of bishops and the role of public officials in Augustine's thought. Obviously, I don't agree with this either. I think Augustine doesn't, he doesn't take the controls out of the hands of public officials. He believes that it is, it is their duty and their responsibility, their officium, if you will, and not his to make political determinations. But he does believe strongly, I think, in bishops advising, in bishops, in bishops leading, in bishops contributing to this, um, 
to this public discourse. So he doesn't, he doesn't isolate bishops from the political sphere. There's a very famous, well, famous to us, correspondence between Augustine and Nectarius about a, a riot that took place in, a, in an African town. And the question of what to do with those pagans who participated in the violence against the Christian church there. And there, Augustine very definitely takes a, a position that he expects uh, public officials to adhere to and defends the rights of, of Christians to, uh, to enforce bans, as it were, to enforce bans on pagan festivities. It's a terribly involved question. So I don't think that Augustine was hands-off. Uh, I don't believe that he believed that bishops should stay out of the public sphere, out of political discourse, totally. But again, he, his expectations were moderate. He didn't expect that um, he didn't expect that even Christian politicians would would respect the word of bishops so much so as to conform to bishops' wills about uh, public policy matters. The third position maintains that Augustine really believed that political power should be in the hands of bishops and not public officials, that public officials should follow the sway of bishops. This, is, this kind of casts Augustine as the founder of Christendom. I don't agree with this particular uh, approach either. I don't think that Augustine believes it's the role of bishops to make public policy decisions and to, and to enforce them. He doesn't favor a kind of a theocratic approach at all. To, um, to public policy. So I think Augustine, in conclusion, believed in giving advice to Catholic politicians. He believed in, in, um, he believed in Catholic teachings. He believed in Christian teachings. He believed that uh, Christian politicians should try to mitigate the evils of war as much as possible, even to the point, as I say, of being willing to forego um, territory in, in pursuit of a, a more just outcome. His position on capital punishment, as we saw, was, uh, was not in favor of capital punishment, clearly not in favor of capital punishment, but not something that he thought that he had a, the right to ban as a bishop. I think I'll stop there and, and just, just take questions that might have occurred to you.